0: since I've made everybody mad, so I think it's about time. Uh, So maybe before we get done tonight, you'll understand in a few minutes um, why I say that. But I hope you're not too mad at me when we get done tonight. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 18. And we are continuing our study in this 18th chapter concerning the destruction of economic Babylon. And that is, of course, the great empire that's ruled by the Antichrist during the tribulation time. And we've noted in our studies that it seems like the world now is in a position that could indicate that the coming of Christ might not be too far in the future. Now, we always have the hope, of course, that Jesus would come back today. In fact, in Scripture, we're commanded to look for His coming. It's called the blessed hope because we know that when Christ comes... That his kingdom will soon be established. Jesus taught us to pray in the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. He said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think each day that we go on without looking for Christ's coming, that that's also a day, I'm sure, that we go on without praying for his kingdom. And our greatest hope is that the kingdom of Christ would come upon this earth because when that happens, we will be delivered from our sins. Uh, Christ, our king and ruler, will rule over us in a perfect kingdom with perfect peace. And we know that day is coming. God's told us to expect that, to look for that, and to pray for that. And so we do look for the coming of the Lord. But what we're not so foolish to do is to predict when that coming will be we don't know when it will happen. We can't put a certain date on it like many have done. As some of you know, the founder of Family Radio says that Christ is coming back on May twenty-first, two 2011. So that leaves us about eight months to get prepared for that. And I, I kind of wondered about the date. I was really hoping it would be April the 14th so I wouldn't have to worry about getting my income taxes done. But, um, so we're not going to set any dates like that. We we don't know when Christ is coming back, but if we were to look at the mindset of the world today and we look at the global economy that we have, we look at the um, degrading, I guess you would say, of the sovereignty of nations around the world, and if you look at the rapid advance of communication so that the world is very quickly in touch in any place... Those are all factors that could indicate that the coming of Christ is very soon, or at at least the world is looking for the introduction of the Antichrist. Now, I've mentioned before that what we don't want to be guilty of as God's people is to be looking at the signs and trying to interpret all the signs of what's happening so that we come to the place where we actually look for the coming of the Antichrist rather than looking for the coming of the Christ. We are to look for Jesus' coming, Well, we have all this information in the Bible about his coming, and we're told to look for it, and saints in every ages have done that. And it's been centuries since Christ gave us the promise, and he hasn't come back yet. But it doesn't mean that the information that we have in the Bible concerning this is not good for us and is very, very pertinent for the time that we live in regardless of whether Jesus comes next week or if he comes even another thousand years from now. Because we have warnings in the Scripture that what we ought not to do is to wrap ourselves up in the world system. Not to get bogged down with what the world is doing, the world's economy, all these different kinds of things, and center all of our attention in that. So we don't want to become entangled with the world systems. And when it comes to the end... The world would be so tightly wound up in the economic success of money and luxury, prosperity, all the things that the Bible calls the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those kinds of things will consume people to the exclusion of the value of their eternal souls. Now, it's amazing to me that what we have today, a... Well, I, I hesitate to call it a branch of Christianity because it's not Christian at all. And we have to be careful about using the word Christianity because, and church for that matter because the world doesn't recognize the Christianity of the Bible. I mean, there's a Christianity that people have in their minds, but most of the time it doesn't coincide with what Scripture says. But we have this group of people, this philosophy that's been building and building, especially over the last 50 years, that have those three factors that I just mentioned as their primary goal. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that's none other than what we call the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. That is exactly the thing that they're looking for. And people have drunk in that philosophy, and they think that that's what God would indeed have for his people. In Lakewood, Texas, there is one of the largest churches in America, Uh, in weekly attendance at least. There are 35,000 people that pack into arena every week to hear this kind of drivel preached. Millions of books are sold concerning it, promoting what is a scheme of the devil. No one in the history of the world has ever seen anything like this. The austerity of the pilgrims that were in America are in the distant past. Believe me, folks. And I I might add this as well, that a change from the original doctrines that the pilgrims brought to this country, uh, a change in their belief that God is sovereign, a change in the belief that God is central, to all these years of Arminian preaching where man becomes the determiner of his own destiny, that has produced exactly what can be expected. Because whenever you put man at the center of things, when he becomes central, then the core value of man's nature will always dominate. Man will always be concerned about himself more than anything else. Well, we come here tonight to this long section in chapter 18, which is about the sadness or the lamentation of every sector over society because of the destruction of Babylon, that, that city that's the economic capital of the world in the time of the Antichrist. Babylon is bewailed, because it is the hope of godless people. All of their confidence is in Babylon. That's their life. That's their livelihood. And God says that he's going to bring every bit of that down. Now, if you'll look here in verse number 9 tonight, we're going to start reading here and go all the way to the end of the chapter. This, this whole part of Scripture fits together, so there's hardly a place that we can actually break it off. So it's just best for us to read all of this at once. So if you'll look at verse number 9 in verse, or and cha- chapter 18, verse number 9, It says, "'And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her,' that's with Babylon, "'shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise any more.' The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and of fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all thine wood and all manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men. And the fruits that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee, and all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all. The merchants of these things, which were made rich by her, shall stand afar off for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. And saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour so great riches has come to naught. And every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors and as many as trade by sea stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is likened to this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness, For in one hour is she made desolate, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. And the voice of harpers and musicians and pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee, and no craftsman of whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee." And the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. We're going to take two weeks to get through this. Uh, Tonight we'll have the first message on it, and then I'm going to be gone for a little while, and so it's going to be a couple weeks or so before we come back to it. But we're not going to look at every detail that we find in these scriptures that we've read tonight. Uh, I'm just going to break it into some manageable sections, so that we can understand how devastating that the destruction of this city is to every sector of society. And I say to every sector of society, but there actually is one sector that won't have a problem with the destruction— There are some people who will cheer when Babylon is destroyed. And if you can't guess who those are, then I pray that you'll get saved tonight. Now, first of all, I'd like for us to uh, glance back at verse number 5 in this 18th chapter. And if you wanted to caption the message with the cause for the destruction of the city, this is the verse that you'd want to underline. The Scripture says, "...for her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities." We've looked at that verse before, and I found that it was quite fascinating that this verse ties the ancient city of Babylon to the story of the destruction of future Babylon. And the literal meaning of this, of this verse is actually that Babylon has piled up its sins brick upon brick until those sins have finally come to the place where they've reached into heaven. The sins have become so enormous that they piled up all the way into heaven. Now, of course, that is a reference to the Tower of Babel that was built just after the flood. When Nimrod built that tower, he intended that he would build a tower that would reach all the way into heavens. Not, of course, that it could physically reach beyond the stars and the sun, but the tower was so large that it was built to be a monument to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. And so there in Babylon, that very first tower that was built there, the thing that marked that city, and where the first human government was found and where the first idolatrous religion was found, the thing that marked that city was a monument that was built to all of these false gods. Now, that's where we get mythology. As I mentioned before, that's where we get astrology. All false religions, all idolatrous religions, find their beginning right there at the Tower of Babel. Now, after all of these centuries, the wickedness that was begun there has piled up To a place where the physical tower could never reach. It could never reach into heaven. But here we find in these verses that these sins that started at Babylon have been going along all through history. And when we get to the tribulation period, those sins will be piled so high, the Bible says that they reach into heaven. So the iniquities of the Antichrist and his supporters will push the limits of God's endurance. Wickedness is filled up to the brim. It's spilling over. And now God says Babylon's sins are remembered. And so the destruction of the city comes. And what an unbelievable destruction it will be. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah is referred to as the weeping prophet. And there's actually a book of the Bible that's named Lamentations that was written by uh, Jeremiah. And that's about... Jeremiah's crying, his, his weeping over the city of Jerusalem and how, that they were dest- how it was destroyed by the Babylonians and God's people were taken captive. And the reason that Jeremiah was weeping and wailing for Jerusalem is because those were God's people and he had godly sorrow over the sins that they had committed and the way that God responded to those. But as we look at Babylon, the wailing there, the sorrow there, it's not for sins that have been committed... But they're crying about this because the opportunity to commit even more sins have been taken away from them. So that opportunity of further sin has been cut off, and now they have come to the day of reckoning. They thought that they were untouchable. Verse number 7 says, How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. But sorrow she will see... Because God remembers her sin, and that sin and sorrow is deeper than they could ever have thought possible. So we're going to look at the divisions in these verses. Uh, I've noted five different divisions that we find from verse number 9 to the end of the chapter. Four of them are about weeping, and the other one is a cause of celebration. I've only got time, really, to get to two of these tonight, so we'll, we'll save the rest for the next time. So first of all, the first division that we find here is the cry of the kings. And so in verses 9 and 10, we read, And the kings of the earth, who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her, shall bewail her and lament for her, when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour thy judgment has come. The kings, of course, refer to the heads of state, all of the governments, that have aligned themselves with the Antichrist. Now, if you remember back in chapter 17, we talked about ten kings that will possibly rule ten specific regions of the earth. Ten kings over large portions of the earth. But we're not talking about those same kings here. They're included in the group. But we're actually talking about here the kings of actually hundreds of nations. And all of them, in the time of the Antichrist, will join in with him. All of them will be together and they'll be against God. Now, the economic power of the Antichrist kingdom is so vast that Scripture tells us that there is no person that is able to buy or sell. There is no commerce that goes on unless every person, every country, is a part of the Antichrist Federation. And so every citizen in every country has been branded in some way or another with the mark of the beast. Now, as I've said before, when we were studying uh, those verses early in Revelation, that's probably the thing that people want to know most about the book of Revelation. What is that mark of the beast? What does that stand for? When, that, when is that going to happen? Well, those people that want to buy and sell in the Antichrist kingdom will have to have the Antichrist mark. And if they don't have it, not even a crumb of bread can be legally sold. Now, of course, we as God's people think that that's a very bad thing, and rightly so. But those people in that time will not see it as bad. Most of them have gladly taken that mark because what it does is to guarantee their prosperity. So they throw in with the Antichrist. He has a burgeoning, he has a building empire. They want to be a part of that because that empire is successful in every way that you can imagine. Now, you think about it for just a moment. It has tremendous military might. Uh, at the Battle of Armageddon, the combined forces, the armies that will be there, will number upwards in the multi-millions. In World War II, at any one time, there were no more than 50 million people that were fighting in that world war. Whereas in at Armageddon, there will be upwards to 200 million that will be involved in that battle. And so there's no nation that would ever dare to step out of line or buck that system And so the kings of the earth are are happy to be in that because they find their safety in those numbers. There's no worldly threat against them. There's no problem with someone coming and taking over their kingdom as long as they're allied with the Antichrist so they know their positions are safe. And then you think about the economic power of the Antichrist. That's unparalleled in history. I mean, despite the disasters that have occurred during the tribulation period, the Antichrist has held the economy together. And I can't even imagine what kind of policies he has to institute to make that happen. But he's an economic genius. Somehow, he's been able to turn the disaster that the world is in to a monetary success. And it could be that the economic power is concentrated at the top. And so we find that the kings in verse number 9 that lived deliciously with her, who lived in luxury, maybe all of that wealth and luxury is concentrated at the top of the pile... And so that connection with the Antichrist might mean that uh, all the wealth is, is sucked up into those that are leading. And that, of course, wouldn't be uncommon for a monarch. I mean, there are, have been monarchs throughout the history of the world that have used the people as stepping stones. If you go back and you look at France just before the French Revolution, the wealth of monarchs was flaunted in the face of the people, of the face of the poor. Louis XIV Fourteenth built the palace of Versailles, which was the most opulent palace that the world had ever seen, spent untold millions of dollars. It stagger our imagination what was used to, to build that palace in Versailles. And then by the time of Louis the Sixteenth, the monarchy had become completely detached from the people. There was a famine of bread to where the cost of bread rose to 50% of a person's income. And from that time period there's the legend that Marie Antoinette was so oblivious to the plight of the poor that she uttered those words, let them eat cake. Now cake was a luxury bread that was ate by the royals and they were so detached from the plight of the people that they thought that what they could do, the poorest of people could just go out and buy the same kind of bread that the monarchs, that the the rulers bought. And so they were completely oblivious to that plight. And so Marie Antoinette, probably never said the words, let them eat cake. But regardless of that, the attitude of both her and Louis, Louis XVI, was enough to put their heads into the guillotine. And so here we have the kings that have made it to the top, and they've come up on the backs of the people, and they see that good life that they had living with the Antichrist in federation with Babylon. And so they stand off, and they think about that great time that they had. They indulge their fleshly appetites. From food to sex to drugs, every whim that they desired was catered. And here they're looking at it and seeing the good life destroyed. All of it's vaporized. And we notice in verse number 10 that they stand afar off at a distance. And they watch this because they don't want to go down with the city. There's that fear of torment. And I think this is where the reality hits home. They don't want to be too closely identified. They can't go to her aid. That's impossible. And so they don't want to become too closely identified with Babylon because they would be vaporized as well. But perhaps this is where we find that reality setting in. They've lived deliciously. They've had all the luxuries and they see that go down and they know that they're next. Because what we have here is the time that the mercy and grace of God has been expended. There is no mercy and grace left. And so all that can come is destruction. And these people are going to go into God's guillotine one way or another. And so what they'll do then is to make their last stand in the battle of Armageddon. And they'll go there because they don't have a choice. God, as we've studied before, actually leads them to that place. They know that death is coming to them one way or another. And so I suppose that what they do is, well, we know we're going down, so let's give it our best shot. Let's see if we can overcome the Lord and his armies. And so the cry from these people is, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. Now, alas, alas is translated in other versions as woe, woe. And that's actually an automatic peak word, which simply means that the word imitates the sound that it makes. And so when that word is spoken in the Greek language, it actually sounds like a mournful cry. And then we also notice that they call it the great city Babylon, which means that Babylon itself has become an idol to them. This is a city that's been built up by the Antichrist, and despite all that's happened in the world, Babylon is still standing. With all the earthquakes, with all of the meteors and the hailstones weighing up to 100 pounds, Babylon has withstood all of that. It's still their shining city. Death and destruction are everywhere outside of those city walls. The rest of the world has become a wasteland outside of Babylon. But the city withstood all of that. And that gives those people a false confidence because they think that no matter what happens, Babylon will still be there. Physically and economically, it withstood everything. And so that's a symbol of their might. That's their staying power. This is their actual ability to overcome God. But now as they stand back and they watch it, it all comes to nothing. It falls down, God destroys it, and with that it brings this uncontrollable sobbing. Now, folks, that reminds me of what many Americans think. You know, we've been living in the lap of luxury for so long... We've kept building and building, we, keep, we eat our fill, we have our houses, we have our cars, our vacation homes, our hot tubs, and we live like this is never going to end. And what we find is that people are scrambling to get into America today because of what we have. Now, you don't find Americans trying to sneak over the border into Mexico. And Americans are not trying to get into Bangladesh. Well, they wouldn't do that. I mean, there are people in other parts of the world that don't have anything to give, but if they did, they give everything they own and more just to trade places with the poorest person that's in America. That's how much that we have. And so, uh, Americans have looked at that, and we've gathered all that stuff to ourselves, and so what's happened to us is we have become more dependent on that lifestyle every single day, and we live like it can't end. We are living here In this county where we are right now, in one of the most godless places of America. And people flaunt that in the face of God. And try as you might, you are not going to find a guarantee anywhere in Scripture for the survival of America. Now, if we were still the pilgrims and still believe like they did, maybe we would have a chance. But we're not like the pilgrims any longer. In Psalm 9, verse 17, it says, The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all nations that forget God. Well, we need to go on. This is turning out to be longer than I thought it would be. be. But uh, let's go on to the second division that we have here, and that is the mourning of merchants. In verse number 11, it says, And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth her merchandise anymore. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read down through this list again of all the items that are mentioned. But in verses 12 and 13, there are 28 items mentioned, and they cover the broad spectrum of all the things that are sold in Babylon, and most of these things are, are luxury items. Now, what I've done here is to group what these verses say into seven different categories, and all these are symbols of wealth. Now, here's the part where you're probably going to get mad at me before I get done, okay? So, what is the first, the first division here that, that represents the wealth of Babylon? Well, the first one would be jewelry. And all the jewelry salesmen say, amen. The first one is jewelry. Uh, This is the gold, the silver, the precious stones, and the pearls. Now, what is one of the things that people do to demonstrate their wealth? Well, they start to decorate their bodies. And things have gotten a little bit out of hand, I think, in the last few years. You know, when I was younger, we used to watch uh, National Geographic and you, or get the magazines or whatever, and you'd look at those pictures of the natives and African places like that, and you'd see those people with all of these crazy things stuck all over them and tattoos everywhere, and you'd think, What in the world? Who would ever do such a thing as that? And now, today, if you walk down the street, you see pincushions walking down the street all the time. <laughs> I, I, I mean, there's people that have pierced everything that can be pierced. Uh, noses and, and eyelids and tongues and lips, you name it. They've they stuck something in it. I remember uh, when I was younger that, um, I mean, this is the way that very conservative people fought. And uh, being Baptist, we thought this way. I remember when my dad was against a woman piercing her ears. And I'm talking about one piercing. One, he, he taught against that. Now, he later in his ministry gave in on that. And uh, so he said, okay, that's okay. Pierce your ears. That'll be fine. Well, folks kind of took that and ran off with it. You know, one piercing's not enough anymore. Now you've got to be full of holes everywhere. And, of course, for people that can afford it, they stick a diamond at every one of them. Now, I'm not against jewelry. Not, not in any way. If you can afford that, that's fine. I would be a little bit hesitant about taking those kinds of resources and satisfying ourselves and decorating ourselves to, at the expense of God's work. I definitely think that's the wrong thing to do. But there comes a point where all of this can be so ostentatious that the Bible gives a warning about it, and it says that it becomes a vain thing. And what we should not do is try, try to draw attention to ourselves. That, that's not what God wants us to do. A Christian should never be the kind of person that's always trying to draw attention to himself and... and And have people look at him. We want to reflect Jesus Christ. We want to reflect the glory of God. And so, we don't need uh, all of those displays. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll stop with that. You know, someone told me once that I was very brave about things that I said from the pulpit, but there comes a point when I chicken out myself. So, I'm going to stop with that one. Second thing that we find here, another division is clothing. This is the fine linen, the purple and scarlet and so on. And this applies as well because here we have another show of wealth. I'm going to say something about clothing because the door's kind of been opened up here by what we've read, so I'm going to stick my foot in just a little bit here. What should you wear to church? Well, I think it's probably quite a bit different than what we see a lot of times in churches today. I think there's some things that we ought to stay away from. I think tight clothing is one of those things. Uh, wearing clothing where you can see every mold that's on your body. Uh, that shouldn't be, be done in the church. See-through things. I don't think that you ought to have those kinds of things in the church. Short dresses and stuff like that. And you can let your imagination go here. And you can think of the kinds of things that you probably wouldn't want to see in church. Fashion is not always godly. Now, I don't advocate that we dress in a Victorian manner. But I do think that we've got enough sense to know the limits of what ought to come into God's house. Now setting that part aside, let me uh, tell you a little bit about why I dress the way that I do when I come to church. I dress the way that I do because I have respect for what I do. Almost every time that you go out somewhere, no matter where you're going, you're always concerned, am I dressed appropriately? Am I going somewhere, have I got the right clothes on? Now, when I'm not coming to church, I still think about that. I think, well, when I'm going someplace else, am I wearing the appropriate thing that I ought to wear? And it's not uncommon for people to have things like a a party, and they say, well, this is a black tie affair. And what do you do? You dress up. You, You change your clothing for that, because if you don't do that, then you would actually offend the host of your party if you did that. Well, I think we could look at that somewhat as we think about what the Lord expects when we come into his house. I think that we ought to become presentable. We don't have a dress code in church, so we're not telling anybody, well, here is a specific clothing that you have to wear. We don't say everybody has to wear a suit, not everybody has to wear a tie. You don't have to go and buy an expensive dress and things like that in order to come to church. We don't do that. But I do think that we ought to be a little bit careful that we come to church in a presentable way. And some people would say, well, does that mean that God loves you more or less because of the way that you dress? Well, that's never been an issue. I've never taught anybody that God loves you more or less for anything that you do. There's only one reason why God loves you. He loves you because of Jesus Christ. Not what you do. He loves you because of Christ. And if it weren't for him, you're out of luck. It's all because of Christ. So it's never been an issue. Does God love me more or less because of what I wear? That's not the issue. I'll tell you what the issue is, though. How much do I love God? How much respect do I give God? That's the real issue. And so that's why I think that we need to be careful sometimes about what we wear. So I'll leave that one go. Third thing is furnishings. And that's the wood, the brass, the marble, and things that you see here. And a thion wood in verse number 12, that's kind of an interesting one. That's a fragrant, scented wood that was only affordable to those that were very wealthy. And so what this this represents is your house and things that you put into your house. And where you live, isn't that also a symbol of wealth? And they'll be very concerned about such things in Babylon. Fourthly is spices. Cinnamons, odors, frankincense, those are all items for the very wealthy. In the 13th and 14th centuries, most of you, if you remember a little bit about your world history, there was a man by the name of Marco Polo who um, went, acro- went overland to get to the Orient to establish trade routes with China and the, the Eastern nations. And he did that because bringing back those spices and keeping that trade flowing, the very wealthy would pay a good price to have that done. Columbus, when he sailed to the West and accidentally stumbled upon America... He was looking for a trade route, a shorter trade route, an easier way to get to China so they could get all of these spices and so forth. And then after Columbus, we know that there were oh, multitudes of explorers that, that went, uh, tried every passage that you could think of around, uh, around South America to the north, trying to find a northwest passage through Canada to get there. I mean, all kinds of ways that they tried to get there because they wanted these kinds of spices and so forth for those that would pay the prices to get it. So these kinds of things have always been a favorite of wealthy people. And think about perfumes. The spices, those kinds of perfumes, uh, those kinds of things. The perfumes that people buy today. I mean, you can spend... They tell me at least because I've never done it. I can't afford to do it. But hundreds of dollars on a few ounces of perfume. And for those of you that are the uninitiated and are barbarians, body odor is not chic. I just thought you might, I might throw that in. Fifthly is food, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, all of that is the food that's in Babylon. They have plenty of it, and I suspect that there wouldn't be or wouldn't be just not more than, a, would be. I should say, many gluttons that are there. Now, one of the things I told you a few weeks ago is I'm not really uh, too concerned about preaching uh, on the issue of people being overweight, being gluttons and things like that. I'll let that be, but I will say this, I am... Terribly opposed, and I mentioned this as well, terribly opposed to preachers that are that way. I think the worst thing that a preacher could do is to get up in the pulpit and be overweight and a glutton and preach against people's sin when he is in the most obvious position. I mean, here's the guy that, that uh, is supposed to be a model of what people should do. I mean, I, I wouldn't want, well, I wouldn't want to be a fat preacher. That's all I'll say about that one. All right. All right, next thing we find here, um, Transportation. Horses and chariots. And this is kind of an interesting one, too, because uh, commentators that I've checked on this say that the word chariot is not the normal one in Scripture that you find for chariot. This is a word that means a four-wheeled carriage. Now, Mrs. Rico has a Hummer, and that's a big four-wheeled carriage. You know, I think maybe that should have been translated this way in Scripture. Horses and Hummers. (laughs) Mrs. Rico bought uh, hers, I think it was because she was in an accident. And she was determined she was not going to be run over again. So wa- watch out for her. That's the defense mechanism. But Babylon is going to be a place that's a home to a lot of energy. Uh, industry, I should say. Planes, trains, automobiles, all of that kind of thing. Babylon is a center for that. Everything that goes on economically in the world runs through Babylon. And so the merchants of the world have a field day with Babylon. And no doubt the kings uh, are aligned with these merchants very closely because who is it that... Well, when I speak of kings, I'm speaking of all types of governments. Who is it that finances many political campaigns? Well, what do... People that are in Congress and presidents, what do they do? Well, they make laws that favor people that are in business, so they get tax loopholes and you get tax credits and all of that. And so the merchants will funnel money into uh, campaigns, and so lobbying today, lobbying Congress is very big business. And so there's no doubt that those that are in power will climb in and out of bed with anybody in order to keep all of this stuff flowing to them. Well, we're out of time here. Let me give you the last one kind of quickly here. And this is what I think is one of the most interesting that we have here. In verse number 13, we have souls. Slaves and souls of men. And it's interesting to me the way that this is just kind of nonchalantly slid into this list. And it's not an insignificant addition on God's part. The the souls of men here. The way that it comes into this list of all the things that we've just read is that these souls are like a commodity. Something that's sold like sheep and cows. A man in those days is not much more than bubble wrap that you put into a packing crate. So we look at that and we think, well, those times are so much worse than they are now. But are they really uh, when we think about this and we look at what's going on today, maybe in to some degree it's worse then, but don't think that the exact same thing is not in the human heart right at this moment. For almost 40 years, we've been fighting over this thing about when life begins. In 1973, the Supreme Court became God and gave women the right to an abortion. A- and that which was previously unthinkable on moral grounds has now become a third option for birth control. Murder is a method now. And so you can do this. It's as easy as going to the pharmacy and getting a contraceptive. Millions of babies are killed every year. And we are so set on the right to do this that we are going to make it absolutely sure that the Supreme Court does not get shifted on this matter. And I, I'm going to mention this sometime later, but we do have a, you know, it's... Regardless of what they say, we have a litmus test today whether you got in the Supreme Court, and you better not say where you stand on this issue. And if you do, you better be in favor of it. Well, all of this shows us that we don't have a conscience for the souls of people any longer. Now we're arguing over things like stem cell research, and it won't be very long before egg harvesting will be another commercial enterprise, just another widget that's manufactured. Cloning and all kinds of genetic engineering, we have that going on today. That's probably, we haven't seen the last of that for sure. And so what we've done is we've made human life nothing more than another commodity. And so we trade on life as easily as we do anything else. And folks, this is the very kind of wickedness that will pile up to heaven. And the day is coming when God is not going to stand that any longer. Now, for his wise purposes, for whatever reasons that he decides, I don't know when the time's coming. I won't predict that. But at the same time, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep my ears open for a trumpet to sound. And I'm going to keep my compass pointed toward the eastern skies because I know that one of these days, the Son of Righteousness will come with healing in his wings. And he's promised that he would do that. So Babylon is bewailed, the crying for all of the sins of Babylon. It starts in verse number 9, and it won't end until there's not a dry eye anywhere in the devil's kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we spend in your word tonight. We ask you, Lord, that we would be very, very much aware of what's going on around us and how this world is pushing ever and ever closer to the time that the Antichrist could actually come. Lord, as I've said earlier, we want to be looking for your coming because that's where our hope is. We expect it to come, and we want to do exactly as Jesus said, that we would pray that your kingdom would come upon the earth. Help us as Christians to look forward to that and to tell people that you're coming back. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's please stand as we sing.